Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin, and I'm very pleased to have back a guest in the past, a friend of mine, uh, someone I admire, uh, who's on a mission out there to really change the world, particularly in regard to pain, and specifically around the, the nature of spine surgery in it. And we are talking to Dr. David Hanscom. Dr. Hanscom, nice to have you back on. Thank you, Kevin. Very happy to be here. Yeah, so um, this conversation really came out of a, a article that came out of the Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of weeks ago. And when I read that article, it was about a case that was submitted by their primary care physician to the hospital patient safety committee regarding his patient who had been admitted to the hospital. She had advanced multiple sclerosis. She was bed bound and she was admitted to the hospital because she was um, having difficulty staying awake and rightly so it was hospital there. But, but while she was there, this cascade of overtreatment began. And so it ended up to be just a gallbladder infection for which she had an uncomplicated surgery. And that was the initial part of her whole reason for being admitted. There ended up to be about three other specialist services that were consulted, including a liver specialist and uh, for rare conditions that she didn't have. A neurologist was there for her multiple sclerosis, which they already knew about. An orthopedic surgeon was consulted for, for a hip dislocation for this lady who was not complaining of any problems with her hip and was bed bound and not walking. And uh, the first thing I thought about when I was reading this was the pain world and specifically pain, uh, spine surgery. So, Dr. Hanson, you, <laughs> what's the problem of overutilization in spine surgery? Well, first of all, it doesn't work. <clears throat> and so I think from a um, patient perspective, if you are offered hope on a given procedure and have the hope dashed, well, I think that has a huge impact on the patient. So aside from the physical harm, just from a hope standpoint, it destroys hope. And there's a story I quote a lot. There's a book called Love and Goon Park. It is the substitute for 600 N Street, which is laboratory of um, Harry Harlow, who discovered the attachment theory. And he did monkey experiments. And he could not, he induced, induced all sorts of behaviors in monkeys, but he could not induce depression. The way he finally induced depression, he developed a cage that was narrow at the bottom, wide at the top, but on the top, there was a screen that was transparent. The monkeys would climb to the top of the cage. They would instantly slide down. And they did that for about one to two hours, and they would quit, just sit in the middle of the cage. And then when they took the monkeys out of the cage, they were still depressed. And it was this idea of getting out of the cage, having their hopes dashed, that induced the depression. When they put the monkeys back with their other family members, the depression did not lift. So I think a horrendous problem with promising treatment that doesn't work is this endless hope that keeps getting dashed. And I think that's a huge problem. Second of all, we cause physical harm and we, you know, you put a procedure in place that has minimal benefit. Remember the first premise in medicine is first do no harm. So if you have a procedure that has minimal benefit and has potentially a huge amount of harm, that's a problem. Yep. So yeah, absolutely. I was just going to agree there. <laughs> Right. So the third thing, which is ironic, is that the business of medicine, I mean, business is supposed to make money and procedures are identifiable, identifiable things that you can make money on. But essentially, every procedure that we offer in the treatment of chronic pain has actually been documented not to work. Mm -hmm. For instance, you know, epidural injections for, hey, Kevin, uh -huh. I, need, I need to take a break. I get an emergency. I get a deal with. Can you stop it? Yep, for a I second? can stop it right now. All right. Just a sec. Go, go away. Back after that quick little break here and uh, back with Dr. Hanscom. So the other problem is that I think a major problem with spine care, not just spine surgery, 
is that essentially every treatment that is monitored for our productivity has actually been documented in the literature to not work. <laughs> so, for instance, epidurals for back pain don't work. Epidurals for radiculopathy work short-term, which I think is a reasonable choice, but overall doesn't really work. Does that raise otomies? If that injections clearly have not been shown to be efficacy. There's still not one paper that I'm aware of that shows that spine surgery works for back pain, period. That's even compared to minimal care, certainly not directed at structured care. So essentially, then random physical therapy doesn't work, random acupuncture, et cetera. In fact, the Institute of Medicine, I'm sorry, not Institute of Medicine, but a major national report came out two weeks ago looking at the efficacy of all treatments. And they found out there's a lot of non-operative things that work medium, mild to moderate amount, but what they did not look at is a combination of treatments. You're talking about so, the American College of Physicians back pain guidelines? Correct. Yeah. And we, so I'm gonna jump ahead in the conversation, come off <clears throat> track a little bit about the overuse of procedures. So right now, chronic pain is considered incurable, <clears throat> correct? Yep. I gave a lecture yesterday to a bunch of rehab physicians and with over 150 people in the room, when I asked the question, how many of you enjoy treating chronic pain, essentially nobody raised their hand. And I'm going, oh, wait a second, if this is the majority of your practice and you don't enjoy treating it, how's that going to work? You're going to burn out. So what I have realized over the last month is that we've watched hundreds of patients go to pain-free, as, as you also have. And so chronic pain actually is a curable problem. And the way you cure it is you take known effective treatments and you methodically combine them in a self-directed manner, the problem is absolutely solvable. So as you know, with the process that you and I talk about a lot, that the patient takes charge of the care, and they choose the treatments that, again, have proven efficacy, and combine them, it works. We also know chronic pain is very complicated, so if you take any one procedure by itself, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't really work, ever. So let's take spine surgery, for instance. With spine surgery, I say, look, even way before new book chronic pain, so look, spine surgery is a tool. It's never a definitive solution. So spine surgery is about a third of the solution. Your physical condition is about a third. And then the nervous system is also about a third. So right now, if I do spine surgery, we spend three to six months stabilizing medications, getting sleep, working on anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, working on nutrition, et cetera. So we do a prehab process to try to optimize the outcomes. Many patients with surgical lesions actually cancel their surgery because their pain disappears. Then when we do the surgery, it, it's just phenomenal. We have very, very predictable results. So by combining known treatments in a self-directed manner, chronic pain is a solvable problem. It's not unlike cancer, which you use multiple agents to treat cancer, right? Even cardiac disease, you have multiple treatments as far as diet, exercise, sometimes surgery to solve the problem. Then in chronic pain, there's sort of an odd impulse to do an epidural to solve chronic pain or to do physical therapy to solve chronic pain. When you step back just a little bit, it actually doesn't make sense. So when you randomly throw procedures at patients in chronic pain, the chance of them working is poor. Then you're in this over-treatment mode. <clears throat> a lot of the procedures, of course, have risk. I have a fellow of mine who just called me from the middle, Midwest, and his brother-in-law, who's a radiologist or a pain specialist, had done a cervical epidural and the patient became partially quadriplegic from a hematoma. And of course, you and I have both seen this. So, and of course, surgery has horrendous risk, and I see that pretty much all the time. And so, yeah, we start throwing treatments at people, every one of them has a risk. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and when we're misidentifying the problem, um, you know, it, it just really doesn't make sense. So you touched on a couple a couple big issues. Trying to trying to. <laughs> There's so many. Every time I talk to you, David, there's like so many different ways that we can go with these conversations. Right. But, um, you know, right. it, it's just interesting because we, we continue to just like you said a, a couple minutes ago, we continue to throw massive, massive amounts of money on surgeries and procedures for which the efficacy is simply not there. And right. we're wasting billions of dollars going down this road when we know that there are other ways that aren't that you know that uh they in some ways take a little bit more time they may take uh using resources that we're not typically thinking about they definitely take a new understanding of what the problem is that we think that we're trying to treat is um but you know once you start wrapping money on all this stuff and you start running around these metrics and hospitals you, you know it, it, i know from your direct experience as well when you're trying to treat a patient effectively what happens to your to your income as a physician well, you know, I'm now having these surgical patients get better without surgery. <clears throat> so you already know this, but I'm having a very, very challenging time making a living as a surgeon because the, the electric cases tend to get better with time. We had a patient a while back who is a gentleman who is a professional. He's in a little bit older, and he had a scoliosis that I did surgery on. And I went through the prehab, and he read the book and, you know, worked on medications and physical conditioning and seem to be doing everything correctly. But at surgery, I'm going, wait a second, this spine is very, very stiff. There's nothing new here. This has obviously been there for years, whereas his pain started about a year and a half ago. After the surgery, his pain did not get better. And I finally sat down and pulled up D number six and go, look, what's going on? And you, so come to find out that his grandson had been run over by his son and killed about a year and a half ago. Oh, before, I'm sorry, but before. And the pain started about a week later. And then they chose, then he chose to do the surgery on the birth date of this grandchild. So that's the situation we're finding out really clearly is that physicians are running through procedures. We're not finding out the whole story. This is one I missed, this, per, this did not come out in prior conversations, but the patients that are cancer in the surgeries, invariably there's a major loss. Mm -hmm. Son died, daughter committed suicide, loss of a job, loss of a spouse. And once you understand that those bone spurs have been there for years, what has changed is the stress levels. And when you change the stress levels, it changes the body's chemistry, which increases the conduction of the nerves. As one of my workout buddies so aptly pointed out, is that bone spur as body chemistry changes, will be the first thing to light up. So once we found out you can get people past the situational stress, calm them down, invariably the pain threshold changes and the pain goes away, even with a structural problem. That's why it's become extremely difficult to make a living as a surgeon because invariably, even with very, very tight pinched nerves, the pain still goes away, blows me away. So I am starting, actually I've started a national campaign around the word listen, is that you're familiar with this Francis Peabody article written in 1927, is that the secret of care is caring for the patient. And he cites an example of a woman who comes to hospital for abdominal pain. They do every structural test imaginable and say, you know, sorry, Mrs. Jones, there's nothing we can find. Go home and have a good life. Well, she's going home to an abusive husband. That's the problem. <laughs> Or I saw a patient who's had four prior surgeries, who I've worked through the prehab process, calmed him down, avoided further surgery. He came in with a flare-up, and it turned out he was being bullied at work. 
So instead of doing a massive workup with new myelogram, new CAT scans, considering more surgery, the correct diagnosis was being bullied at work. So the one thing that the business of medicine is not doing is allowing us to listen to our patients. And that is the key to treating chronic disease is understanding the problem. There's also another article that just came out across me just a couple of days ago, is that patient satisfaction with care is dependent not on the procedures, is feeling listened to on the first visit. That is the number one factor that determines successful outcomes. Yeah, and that's and I think there's a there's a danger in that as well because just being able to listen to a patient doesn't necessarily mean that the care is going to be appropriate. And I find that very interesting as I've seen, you know, case examples where I'll never forget there was a there was a spine surgeon or a, um, I think he was up in Portland. This was about five or six years ago. They ended up I think he got his license pulled because he was doing so many surgeries. Right. And I was reading the comments from the there were patients that were up in arms about it. This guy was doing dangerous operations. He had had some serious, serious adverse events occur. But the comments were all, well, this doctor listened to me. And um, he listened to me, and, and if I needed, and he would, and he would do certain, one person had, had three cervical fusions in a, in a one-year period. And, um, yeah, so that, I just want to point out that, that that listening is so important, and in the same way, it can also be abused in some ways because if because just the listening component can provide so much information but a lot of times the people who are listening are often using that that data to 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 do things that are inappropriate on their patients so yeah that's that's a very very good point i had i actually have forgotten that part of the whole equation so years ago i there was a surgeon who no longer is in practice who did 125 fusions for back pain and not one of them went back to work I, I had several of them come to me for second opinions. I go, no, this makes no sense. And they were desperate to have the next operation because a lot of people can be very personable, almost seductive as a physician, um, talking to patients in the surgery. And you're right. There's a certain personality type that is extremely persuasive. It's almost like a cult. And you have to be extremely careful of that. I agree. That's a good point. I had forgotten about that. Which uh, unfortunately makes things a lot more difficult for patients. And um I think it's just wise and for the the to kind of get to for the listeners out there is to, you know, take everything with at least a grain of salt. And if you're going into a elective, and anything that is an elective procedure is something that the the doctor is not sitting in the office saying, "I need to take you to the operating room right now." If it's right. not that situation, that's an that's basically an elective matter. And do right. some research and actually in in with Google. I mean, people hate Google, and but I Google's a powerful tool. It allows you at least to look and and to find what the pros and cons are and, you know, look, check out Dr. Hanscom's site and, and see what the facts are when it comes to particularly things on back pain and a lot of these interventions though. But, uh, you know, I, I just, it's, it's just, yeah, it's still so difficult for, for people out there in our healthcare system. It, it is right now, you know, actually having excellent insurance, as you all know, is mm -hmm. a little bit dangerous. Yes. Right. Yes. So, I mean, obviously, we do know that when you have no insurance, for instance, the incidence of mortality from breast cancer goes up 50% higher without insurance than with insurance. But if you take other things like chronic pain, if you have excellent insurance, the chance of getting over-tested and over-treated goes up much higher. It's a huge problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the and, more aggressive intervention, then you end up, uh, you can also end up on disability, in which case now you have no insurance. So. Right. And the problem that I'm seeing, which is... Um, really disturbing is that there's still not one paper that I'm aware of that really shows that 
doing a fusion for back pain is efficacious compared to non-operative care. And of course, 25% of people do get better, so you know I'm very happy for those people that do. But 75% either do not or are worse. And right now, it's going to be one and two level fusions. As you well know, there's a whole epidemic of eight level fusions being eight level fusions being done from from T10 to the pelvis, which has an 80% 80% complication rate, including infection, paralysis, nerve root damage revision of the surgery, breakdown of other fusion. I mean, the complication rate of having six or eight hours of surgery is very, very high, but it's being thrown out like crazy and is incredibly disturbing. That's why I've actually cut my practice down by a third or more to get this message out into the general public. And I know you're doing the same thing. But yeah, it's very disturbing to see the magnitude of the procedures that are being overused now because they are intense. And I had one nurse I saw a while back, it was not my patient, who had had 10 operations in seven years. Another guy had had 15 operations in 48 months. Another gentleman had 20 operations. 15 in, in 48 months? Yep. Oh, my Lord. It's, all, you needed, all you needed was a laminectomy, developed a fusion, infection, multiple surgeries to deal with the infection. Ended up from having... Ended up progressing from a one-level, I'm sorry, all he needed was a one- or two-level laminectomy. And as the fusions got infected, he kept climbing up his spine. So 15 operations, he was fused from his neck all the way to his pelvis. Yeah, that, and that's another example of, um, in that overuse, about the downstream effects. Is Some people say, well, if they, if they you know, there's some people that are, would argue if 25% of patients, quote-unquote, get better with spine surgery, then that means it's okay to operate. But right. unfortunately with that, when you're looking at pain, when you are looking at the data for people, and you know this, David, I'm just talking to the audience here, is when you're looking at people who get better for pain, particularly when you're doing a structural-based modality against them for chronic pain, the variables that determine whether they get better or not have almost nothing to do with the structure themselves. It generally tends with decrease of fear, has usually release of trauma, it has to do with improve, uh, improved pain beliefs, uh, pain self-efficacy, but the things that are the non-specific things that go around the actual structural-based modality itself. And it's just like, well, if you're going to do these expensive surgeries, but the the actual treatment effect isn't from, quote-unquote, the actual surgery itself, but the whole ritual and the confidence and the trust developed with the physician around it, then maybe we should actually start focusing on providing better care that doesn't rely on these aggressive interventions uh, and that people can get better and well from rather than using this argument. And, I've and again, I've seen this particularly in the interventional realm, where um, one very prominent physician in the pain world will say, well, yeah, these, these injections, it may be that we're injecting you know, normal saline, which is an inert substance, or we, and then we can inject saline, uh, or we can inject steroid, or we can inject lidocaine, and the differences between any of those substances and, and the actual outcome is the same which means right. that the treatment effect is not because of the substance that we're injecting. And he argues, well, that's okay. Because if people say that they're better, well, then we should, then we, it's okay to do these, these procedures. And I, I think that's just egregious. So I'm sorry I had to go on a little rant there about that. Well, let me make a comment on that. So, you know, the word placebo has developed a very negative connotation in the medical world and also the general public. Actually, placebo is simply the body's capacity to heal. And so that's what you want to elicit. You want the body's capacity to heal. So placebo effect is the fact that you want to elicit, mm -hmm. right? So what happens is a body chemical reaction, your immune system changes, symptoms really do disappear. And we do know that the more invasive the procedure, the higher the placebo effect. 
However, you want to elicit that effect without risk. So an injection has risk. Surgery has risk to it. So, for instance, um, they've showed that a TENS unit was about the same as placebo, which is about 35% effect rate. My argument back then, and I still feel this way, is that a TENS unit, which is, which is just an electrical stimulation to the back through pads, has no risk. So if 35% of people get better with it, that's great. There's zero risk to that. And again, what you're trying to do is optimize the body's chemistry. If it helps you relax, if you feel good with it, fine. If it doesn't work, drop it. So again, you're looking at a structured approach that's self-directed where patients make the choice, but you have to protect the patients from the risk. And that's the problem with surgery. It has significant risk. I had a patient years ago who had a one-level decompression. There's a dural tear, which is interrupt in, you know, interrupting the cerebral spinal fluid. And this is a one-hour surgery. Dural tears happen as a known complication of surgery. She had just a little bit of bladder numbness. She developed a urinary tract infection which was with E. coli, and she died. Oh, jeez. So I'll never, I mean, that, that changed my life. I mean, I, I simply have said years ago, there's no such, thing, no such thing as simple spine surgery. It has never been brought home more since I dealt with that situation um, years ago. It was horrible. Yeah, in, uh, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. So please do not think spine surgery, for any procedure, any specialty, we, I have a, friend of mine whose mother had a angiogram to her head for probably in retrospect a relatively minimal lesion and in her early 70s developed this massive massive stroke and it's just destroyed the entire family mm-hmm. probably didn't need to be done yeah and um you know we're, we're talking really specifically about about pain and spine surgery um but i was just reading another article you know when you're looking in the, in the cardiac realm they're sort of an interesting group as well. I was reading an article uh, by Dr. John Mandrola, who who does quite a bit of writing on, I think he does it on Medscape, but who he's a cardiac electrophysiologist and an article that he just published today was talking about atrial fibrillation and the fact that atrial fibrillation is sort of the wild west world for for cardiologists out there where they're, they're not, they don't have any data-driven practices. They don't really have any endpoints for it. And atrial fibrillation is also, again, a condition that if you do non-invasive treatments for weight reduction, stress reduction, sleep improvement, you can actually improve people's cardiac rhythm without doing these these ablations. And people are having massive amounts of of uh, of these interve- interventional cardiology procedures done as as well. So it's not just in the pain world, folks. Although I think we are. I do have to think that we're along one of the worst offenders in this realm, but it really is our healthcare system. No, it's a healthcare system problem. And but going back to the chronic pain part, which makes this incredibly ironic now. And Kevin, you know my friend Ray Bunnage, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Ray's a computer friend of mine who's brilliant. He made it a hobby to look up the data supporting my book. And he found over, I mean, he gave me over a thousand articles of which I read a couple hundred. So he really looked at the data, um, you know, supporting the concepts behind um, what we're talking about. And again, the data for procedures is almost zero. And what the process is, is around awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play of simply calming down the nervous system. So in the new book, what we're finding out is that outside stress changes the body's chemistry, which creates real physical symptoms. And once you become aware of your automatic stress response, which also always involves stress chemicals, and you start calming things down, 
it's remarkable how much the symptoms disappear with zero risk, no risk. Yeah. So then I'm watching that, and I'm watching hundreds of patients go absolutely pain-free, and then I'm watching people come in every day now in clinic with major surgeries being done that simply should not have been done, and it's brutal. So it's, it's become harder for me to watch this because I realize how simple. It probably costs between 500 to maybe $3,000 for these patients to go pain-free because it's mostly self-directed. And I'm watching $100,000 surgery have infections, complications, screw misplacement, back to the OR, endless complications. The amount of suffering is indescribable. And we keep spending the money trying to salvage the complications. But these are people's lives being absolutely destroyed to the ultimate degree. Because there's no end point to the what I mean, talking about no hope to chronic pain, talking about being trapped by procedures and complications, that the the end point is just trying to survive it. And you, you never come out the same as when you went in, went into it if you start having a lot of complications. So it's become much harder for me to watch this now um, than it used to be five years ago. Can I, uh, um, a quick question. What do you find from your national body, like uh, um, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons or Spine Surgeons? What Are, are you seeing them even pushing this awareness? Because the, I'm sure they're aware of the data as well. They are not. The data has been around for years. As you know, I wrote a paper in a, a year ago, December, looking at the role of cognitive behavioral mm -hmm. therapy in pain. It turns out cognitive behavioral therapy is a generic term. It can cover lots of different types of therapies. And of course, chronic pain is a broad term. But if you systematically use cognitive behavioral therapy, which is changing belief systems around certain situations, so if you look at CBT, which is the abbreviation for cognitive behavioral therapy, directed at sleep and improve the sleep, you can use CBT to improve sleep. Then you can use CBT to work on anxiety and depression. Then you can use CBT to work on compliance with physical therapy and medication management. So if you direct the treatment at the components of pain, it's remarkably effective. And so again, it's a self-directed process that just costs nothing. When I mentioned this concept in the Global Spine Journal, there's some feedback to it. When I interacted with a national spine committee on non-operative care and mentioned these concepts, I actually did not get one email back, not one. Oh, it's like I didn't even exist. So, so the data is deep. I mean, what disturbed me after writing this paper is that I did not know when I wrote the first book how deep the data is about so many treatments that actually work. I had no idea. And then the paper out of Baltimore, I think I've quoted to you before, that show that it's been known that depression, anxiety, catastrophizing, lack of conditioning, medications, all pretend poor outcomes of any procedure, particularly of surgery. Less than ten percent, less than ten percent of surgeons are actually assessing those variables. Less than ten percent. So it's there. The data is absolutely there, but there's also data showing that surgeons are ignoring the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a, um, and I can't remember the, I have it somewhere listed, but what I found was actually fascinating because I started pulling stuff out of the spine surgeon or surgery literature and the fact that there was no, they, you know, there, there was no way they could predict a successful outcome for spinal fusion. And what was, was remarkable was, was all the therapies that they were looking at to, that were, that were, they were trying to find out whether surgery would benefit these patients were things like MRIs, injections, external fixation, corsets, bracing, they were all biomechanical, structural-based modalities. And if you focused on the structure, there was there was no correlation on and who could figure out who was getting better. 
But on the same token, there's multiple uh, uh, journal reviews, which you are aware well of, that we know who doesn't do well with surgery. Right. The, the anxious, depressed, you know, catastrophizing. Right. It's, it's like when we start looking at, wait, those are those are non-structural risk factors and non-structural, um, I call that they're contributors to the experience of pain, huge ones. They're the heat and the oxygen that drive this experience of pain. And yet we ignore them, we, we invalidate them, we don't even our treatment modalities in some ways worsen those those areas um and it's just it, it just blows my mind that we have you know national societies that aren't really taking this under control or at least really addressing it effectively or or willing to even recognize it it seems too often that people are just putting their heads in the sand and, and just like you know clevering their ears up and going la 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 i don't want to hear this data because right because there's some significant concerns and if you actually listen to this data it will change your practice so no, absolutely. You do, if you look at the data and you take it seriously, it forces you to change the practice. So a absolutely. Yeah, no, the data. And then also, you know, physicians are somewhat, um, they're, they're pretty negative in alternative, alternative medicine treatments, et cetera. And I'm sorry, I want to go back to one statement you made. So we know anxiety, depression, catastrophizing all change outcomes. So people saying, well, you're saying the pain psychological. It is not. What happens when you're anxious and depressed and frustrated, it changes the body's chemistry, which increases the stress chemicals, which, which increases the conduction of the nerves. So it's a very direct cause and effect. It's much more logical to think that body symptoms are a function of physiology, not structure. Probably 99% of all symptoms in any part of the body are physiological in nature. They are not structural. For instance, irritable bowel, we do procedures on endoscopies and all sorts of testing on irritable bowel, CAT scans, et cetera. And bottom line is irritable bowel is a stress chemical response because what happens is adrenaline shuts down the blood supply to the bowel. Same thing with migraine headaches. Migraine headaches are affected by the dilation of the blood vessels and under stress they constrict when you relax, they expand. Guess what, you have a migraine. So it makes no sense to do a huge headache workup Whereas you just simply used proven treatments to calm things down, relax, reroute neurological pathways, it's very, very effective. So we're completely down the wrong rabbit hole. And I do think this business of medicine, which, again, in the defense of business, is supposed to make money and procedures are identifiable revenue streams. But again, my national campaign is to pay doctors to listen and listen carefully and get the whole picture and allow a shared decision making process. So right now we're we're on a really blind pathway that is extremely dangerous for the consumer. Yeah, absolutely, and dangerous and expensive, and um, it, it's going to bankrupt a system. To be honest, with worse care and more money spent, so right, unbelievable. And Kevin, were you, you were there that night that Mark Owens, the the uh, guy mm -hmm. from Africa, told yes. this story? Yes, yes, it was fascinating. Um, I'm curious. So if you look at the first. I don't think we talked about it. You know, I wrote a book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And Kevin, I don't know if you've seen the new book, but you know, Mark Owens wrote the forward to the book. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? Have you seen that yet by chance? Yeah, actually, Mark was on the podcast. So I ha after oh. after that that uh, dinner, I did have him on the podcast, and he told that story, which was I thought remarkable. So if you guys are on, are listening, you can go back. Um, I can't remember what episode it was, but it's it's in there. So briefly, Mark is a gentleman who had had a major spine surgery for a broken back ten years earlier. He had suffered extreme chronic pain for about nine years. He was recommended by two surgeons to have a neck to pelvis fusion with osteotomies, which is about 10 to 12 hours of surgery. And he was 
pretty much ready to sign up and do it because he was so desperate. And he came into my office for a third opinion, and to me, my, his spine looked fine to me. I did not see a reason to do surgery at all. And said, Mark, you know, your spine looks fine, which shocked him. He's a PhD scientist. And said, look, look at my book, start these simple, what we call expressive writing exercises, simply writing down your thoughts and turn them up. There's over 300 research papers that document that this works. And he just thought I was nuts. His friend at the time said, look, what do you have to lose? He went and started the writing. He got about 20% better sleep the first night. By the third night, he was sleeping through the night, and his pain had dropped 80%. I just saw him about three months ago in his ranch in Idaho, and he absolutely was pain-free, riding up in the high country. His horse is going through two feet of snow. He's really pulling a pack horse up two feet of snow without pain. He was doing fine. Other be a little bit sore. Mm -hmm. So he went from a recommended 12-hour surgery, which probably would have been the end of his activity level. He's over 70 years old. He's more than physically active. He's doing stuff that I can't do myself at 64. He's unbelievable. So, I mean, it, it can happen quickly. I mean, his turnaround happened in six weeks. Once you dedralize the nervous system, the pain can go away relatively quickly, actually even quicker than having post-operative pain resolved. So again, it's about optimizing the body's chemistry. Yeah, and and um, you know, psychology definitely affects physiology, and vice versa as well. So, and we tend to, I don't, we we tend to put lip service on this idea that, uh, and I, I will I will challenge that. I, I I do tell people straight out when people talk about pain, all pain is in your head. It has to be created in the head. You have to have an awake and alert brain in order to process uh, nociceptive or information from the body in order to create an experience from of pain. But that does not mean that you're faking your pain. And we know that just like you talked about, David is, is when we have certain types of psychology and you're under stress that does affect the physiology of the body, which increases the amount of, of nerve transmission to the brain itself. And it's this complex relationship that we need to be, it, it is not woo woo medicine. This is not like, this is, this is the way we, we, we work and process. You know, when you, you, the, the best example of a, of a psychophysiological example that, that every one of us experiences consistently is blushing. What's blushing? That is, right. you know, there's a psychological response and you have a physiological uh, outcome associated with it because of that, you know, that, that embarrassment. And that's a psychophysiological phenomenon. And um, we just don't appreciate it nearly as much. And we certainly don't appreciate it with pain or we somehow want to make, you know, we get in this idea of real pain versus pay, fake pain and which is another thing that just makes me go crazy. But anyway, I have a couple comments on that is that, um, as you know, in the new book is that, uh, first of all, I point out to my patients that look, every sensation is interpreted by the brain. For instance, your nose cannot smell or your eyes cannot see without the brain unscrambling the signals. For instance, if, for instance, if you have an occipital stroke, why your brain, the part of your brain that goes to vision is compromised, so even though your eyes are perfectly normal, you can't see. You have you have cortical blindness, right? Yeah. So the only reason why you can smell is because your receptors are in the nose, get interpreted by the brain. So whether it's hearing, sight, sound, taste, whatever it is, if your brain does not unscramble the signals, you cannot experience that sensation. Obviously, pain is in the same boat. Second of all, I actually don't use the word psychological anymore because the research shows that every sensory input can give you reward chemicals and you feel relaxed. 
such as, you know, good music, nice warm sand, etc., gives you dopamine, oxytocin, and different reward chemicals that allow you to feel relaxed. Loud sounds, bright lights can distract you, startle you, and create adrenaline and cortisol, and you feel anxious. Again, anxiety is, is simply the chemical response to sensory input. Ray found out for me that there's a process called where thoughts go to the same part of the brain. They create the same chemical response. And when you have pleasant thoughts, you, you have reward chemicals, and you feel relaxed. When you have unpleasant thoughts, you feel adrenaline and cortisol. And so thoughts are sensory input that you cannot escape. Every animal has an anxiety withdrawal survival response as well as well as humans, but humans have the additional problem of consciousness of which we cannot escape our thoughts. So I actually choose not to look at it as psychological. I think the psychological implications of that chemical response, but that basic anxiety reaction. So from my perspective, anxiety is simply a neurochemical response to sensory input, and it's a part of the unconscious part of the brain, and psychology deals with thoughts which is part of the conscious brain, the unconscious brain is one million times stronger than the conscious brain. So you cannot escape your thoughts. In fact, the research calls them unconstructive repetitive thoughts. And we suppress thoughts, it causes brain damage. It actually damages the hippocampus of your brain, which is the memory center. So that's where the simple writing exercises somehow break through these circuits, start allowing you to reprogram your brain. But it's not, I, would, I call it neurophysiological instead of psychophysiological. And when you have unrelenting anxiety, then obviously the psychological implications of that, but that basic anxiety is simply a chemical response to the environment. And I know it's splitting hairs, but I think it's really important to understand just how the body survives on this planet and how we survive amongst each other, looking at risk versus opportunity, et cetera. But um, the human consciousness creates a whole set of problems that other, other living creatures don't have. Yeah, no, that no, there's a oh, I would, I would, we're running out of time. I would love to go into that because there's um, some super fascinating things on how our brains have developed and the the anticipation and the ability to actually project in the future and why that's necessary for civilization, but also is the root of a lot of these problems that we that we have is that ability to think ahead and to imagine. Right. Um, but I know, I know we're limited on time here, David. So I'm gonna have to bring you back again so we can talk more about this because I love talking to you. I love your work, uh, folks. The, uh, Dr. Hansman's book is Back in Control. It's the second edition, which is a revised and updated variant of his first edition, which, which I highly recommended before. Um, uh, website, Back in Control. He's on a, a fantastic mission here trying to get us to listen. Um, and David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Kevin. I really enjoyed it. All right. And for the rest of you guys, stay well. <laughs>